are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. I want to ask you to take your Bible, if you would. I want you to turn in your Bible to a very familiar passage of Scripture this evening. John chapter number 3. John chapter number 3. And if you're seated under the tents or outdoors, when you found your place, if you will, stand to your feet as we read our Scripture text this evening. John chapter number 3 and verse number 16. Perhaps the most familiar verse in all of the Bible. Perhaps the most well-known verse among even those who know not Christ as their Savior. John chapter 3 and verse number 16. Tonight, let's read aloud together. I have certainly missed our reading the scripture aloud together. Since we've been outdoors, it has not always been conducive to doing that. But tonight, I think with the familiarity of the verse and uh, the number of people that we have, I think it will be good for us. So let's begin and we'll read aloud together John chapter 3 and verse number 16. Ready? Begin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Before I go to the Lord in prayer, I want to turn over and remind you of another verse, 2 Corinthians chapter number 9 and verse number 15. Paul, writing to that church at Corinth, makes this statement concerning the verse that we've read in John 3.16. Paul simply says this, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you tonight, we certainly are grateful for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity that we have to gather together and worship. Thank you for these who have come, for others who are yet on their way from work, uh, and they will be coming in uh, throughout the uh, prog progress of the service. I pray that you would watch over them and give them safety. And then, Lord, as we look to your word tonight, I pray that you might give us clarity of thought. I pray that you might open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. I pray that most of all that you might receive honor and glory, that you might be lifted up, and that when we leave this place, we will know that we have seen you more clearly than we have ever seen you before. Not only that, but we will love you more dearly than we've ever loved you before. And when we leave, that we will determine in our hearts, to the best of our ability, we are going to follow you more nearly than we ever have in our life. I pray that you would help us, and we'll thank you and praise you for it. For we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This evening, we come to the concluding message in our series called Considering Christ. We have looked for several weeks at Christ and different aspects of his life and uh, his work. We considered Christ and his cradle. We looked at Christ and his coming. We considered Christ and his character, that he is both human and divine. Then we examined the matter of Christ and his church. And now we are concluding these last couple of weeks with the subject of Christ and his cross. Last Wednesday evening, Pastor Cooper so clearly reminded us of the pain of the cross. 
what suffering and what agony was required to provide redemption for fallen man. And this evening, my subject is the prophet of that cross. The word prophet has to do with valuable return or gain. I think all of us are interested in profit. None of us would like to go into business to suffer loss. We all want to get a valuable return on our investment. We want to gain from what we have put forth. And could I just say to you tonight that I must confess that personally, I have great gain because of Calvary. There has been great profit in my life. Because of Calvary, I enjoy a generous forgiveness. The writer put it this way, all my sins were laid on Jesus. On the cross, my debt he paid. Then he cried out, it is finished. Airy in the tomb was laid. Now there is no condemnation, not a blot my record bears. For my sin, the blood all covers. Jesus' righteousness I wear. I was reading the other day a story about a young man who was in the military. He was in the army of Alexander the Great. He served in the armies of that great Grecian empire and Alexander the Great who conquered the world and at the age of 30 sat down and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. It is said that this young man was a clerk who served Alexander the Great himself. In uh, conducting the military affairs and keeping the records, he was the clerk for the great general. It is said that one evening the general was out doing other things and the clerk was in the tent finishing up some business and as he finished his work, he set it aside and he had been receiving notices that he had had some outstanding debts and he thought, you know, while I have this opportunity, while I have this time, I need to consider what my debts are. I need to figure out what my indebtedness is. And he began to flip through his records and he began to make notes on a piece of paper. And as he began to write and list all of his debts, his debts for things he had purchased, his debts for gambling that uh, he had participated in, and he began to list all of these lists of debts, all of a sudden he became overwhelmed as he realized how great his indebtedness was. He looked at the income that he would have serving in the army and he looked at the debts that he owed and he came to the conclusion that there was no way he was hopelessly mired. He was ensnared in a trap of his own doings. He had put himself so deeply in debt there was never any hope of recovery. Finally, after trying to figure out everything that he could and tallying up all the debts that he knew, at the bottom of the page in frustration, he wrote the simple sentence, who shall pay for all this? In a few moments, exhausted by his labors of the day and, and uh, worn out by the contemplations that he had, he just simply pushed everything aside and bowed his head and laid his head upon the desk and went to sleep. Later that night, the general came in. He saw the candle burning over at the desk. He saw the soldier slumped over and he thought, wonder if he has had a heart attack, wonder if something has happened to him. He slipped over and he put his hand upon his back and he could feel the heartbeat. He could feel the blood coursing through his body. And he thought he's just exhausted and he's asleep. And as he started to lean over to blow out the candle, he noticed the list of debts that the soldier had written. And he saw the statement at the bottom, who shall pay for all this? 
And that great general took the pen in his hand and he simply wrote two words, I, Alexander. And when that young man awoke the next morning, he discovered that all of his debts had been taken care of. It had all been canceled. There was someone greater than he who had greater resources than he had who stepped in and said, what you cannot do, I will do for you. Oh, can I tell you, many years ago, I began to look at my sin debts. I saw the amount that was heaped up and I knew there was no way I could ever pay that debt. And I wrote at the bottom of my page, who shall pay for all this? And a man stepped forward and he wrote this at the bottom of that page, I, Jesus, I'll pay it all. And Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Oh, because of Calvary, I enjoy a generous forgiveness. By the way, because of Calvary, I have a gracious father. Can I say I'm no longer an orphan? I'm no longer a stranger. I'm not an outcast, but I have a heavenly father who delights to fellowship with me and who invites me into his presence on any occasion, who has promised to meet all of my needs. Oh yes, I have profited by Calvary. Not only do I have a generous forgiveness, not only do I have a gracious father, but now I have a great friend who sticks closer than a brother. In fact, he promised that he would never leave me nor forsake me. He would be with me to the end. He would always be there. When You know, there are a lot of people who say, man, I'm with you through thick and thin. And then when things get thick, they thin out and disappear. Not this friend. When things get thick, he just thickens up with them. He's always there. And when you can't make it any longer, he just simply picks you up and carries you through the difficulties of life. By the way, not only do I enjoy a generous forgiveness, not only do I have a gracious father and a great friend, but now I'm a part of a great family. Oh, aren't you glad to be a part of the family of God? You'll notice we say brother and sister around here. Now, sometimes I'll be honest, I say brother and sister because I can't remember your name. But I'm glad to know that even if I don't know your name, I know who your father is and we can fellowship together and we can love one another and we can enjoy the good things of God and one day anticipate going home to heaven because we're promised a glorious future. Oh yeah, that's only a token of how I've been blessed by the work of the cross. But could I just say to you, alongside our text verses of John 3.16 and 2 Corinthians 9.15, I want to direct your attention this evening to another verse, perhaps a verse that you have never considered in connection with these previous verses. It was a verse that was referred to during the messages on Sunday. In fact, it's a verse that we perhaps don't realize is often in the word of God until we come to the matter of giving. In Acts chapter number 20, and verse number 35, the apostle Paul makes this statement. He said, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now let's pull those verses together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. 
But let's remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Could I just say to you that when we pull these verses together, although they each teach a wonderful truth, when joined together, they declare a concept that is almost beyond comprehension for our finite minds. To think that the work of Calvary resulted in a greater blessing for the giver than for the receiver. Could I just say to you tonight, I am the receiver at Calvary. I did not deserve the gift of God, but I received it. And from that reception, I have been greatly profited. But according to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, as great as my blessing is from Calvary, God got a greater blessing. You say, I don't think that's true. Well, then the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are not true. So it must be true. It must be real that God got a greater blessing. And for a few minutes tonight, I want us to consider how God was blessed through Calvary. I want to say this to you tonight. Number one, at Calvary, God was blessed for Calvary validated his plan. God in his infinite wisdom and foreknowledge knew that man would sin. God knew that man would be separated from him. So long before the world began, God devised a plan to reconcile man unto himself. Revelation chapter 13 and verse number 8 tells us that Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 echo those words. In Acts chapter, 20, uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 23, the apostle Peter tells us that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Here was the great question. The great question was this. How can the demands of the law be met while at the same time the desires of God's love be fulfilled? How can God be both righteous and holy and yet not cause man to suffer eternal punishment for the sin that he has committed? God had to wrestle with this question. God had to face this. And God had to devise a solution. So in eternity past, the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit had a meeting. You say, I don't believe they had a meeting. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. I don't know when it took place, but I just know sometime back there when there was no time in a place where there was no place, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit stepped out of nowhere into nowhere and sat down and said, let's come up with a plan because we know what's going to happen in the future and let's devise a plan whereby man will be reconciled unto us. And so they, each one of them agreed to a part in a plan to redeem fallen man. The son raised his hand, as it were, and said, I will be the substitute. God the Father raised his hand and said, I will execute the sentence. And the Holy Spirit lifted his hand and he said, if you'll be the substitute, if you'll execute the sentence, I will woo the sinner and if we will work together, we can redeem fallen man. You say, I don't believe that's the way it took place. Well, you know what? You find glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament. You just look at that place called Mount Moriah. In fact, do you know that the word Moriah only appears twice in the word of God? 
We know from studying Bible numbers and their significance that two is the number of testimony or the number of witness. And so Moriah is going to be a witness about something. But though Moriah's name only appears twice, the mountain itself is mentioned or indicated or referred to on three different occasions. Therefore, three being the number of the Trinity, I know that Moriah is going to be a testimony or a witness of something about the Trinity. Now, I want you to think about this. The first time it's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, it is a place of promise as Abraham takes his son Isaac up to the mountain to offer him on that mountain. Remember, the son would be the substitute. That's the picture of Moriah in Genesis chapter number 22. It is a place of promise. And God says, as Abraham starts up that mountain and his son looks around, and he says, Father, here's the wood, and here is the fire, but where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son, and by divine inspiration, he says these words, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. It is a place of promise that God the son would be the substitute for the sins of mankind. The second time Moriah is mentioned is 1 Chronicles chapter number 21. In that occasion, it's where David has sinned. He has numbered the people. And as a result of his sin and numbering the people, the judging angel of God has swept over the land. Thousands of people are being slain. And the, the, the judging angel comes to just outside the gates of Jerusalem. And as he sweeps into Jerusalem, he's at a place called the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And when he reaches that place, God the Father stretches his hand and he says, it is enough. You stop right there. I'm satisfied that judgment has been executed. And so in that occasion, it is connected with a place of punishment. Can I tell you that's exactly what God the Father said he would do in regards to salvation? He would execute the sentence. What is the sentence? The wages of sin is death. And so the Father is going to execute the sentence. The third time Moriah appears on the horizon of Scripture is 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse number 1. By the way, isn't it coincidental that they all appear in exactly the correct order? There must be a substitute before there can be a sentence that is executed. And once the sentence is executed, then there is someone who can woo the sinner and invite him to come and be reconciled to God. And in this third appearance of Mount Moriah, it is said that that is where Solomon would build the temple. And as Solomon constructed that great temple, a purpose of that temple was to house the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, which was covered by the mercy seat. And it was on that mercy seat that atonement was made, that propitiation was offered so that Israel could be reconciled with God every year on the day of atonement. Could I just say to you, that's exactly what Calvary did. Calvary was a place of promise. It was a place of punishment, but it is most certainly a place of provision. And at Calvary, the plan of God was validated as the demands of the law were matched by the desires of God's love and the way of salvation was open for whosoever will. Paul said it this way, Calvary enabled God to be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And every time a sinner is saved, the plan of Calvary is validated. Not only did Calvary validate God's plan, 
But I would say that Calvary was a blessing to God because number two, Calvary vindicated his promises. From the time man sinned in the Garden of Eden, God began to promise that he would make a way of reconciliation. God made many, many promises. God promised to see Genesis chapter three and verse number 15. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Can you imagine that? The very first promise of salvation was made to the devil. In other words, here's what God said. I know you think you've won. I know you think you have a victory, but you haven't seen anything yet, buddy. Just wait until I step in. Just wait until I begin to work. I'm gonna cause all of your plans to come to nothing. I'm gonna provide a way where man that you think you have pulled down and has no hope and no help, I'm gonna provide a way whereby he can be reconciled unto me. God promised to see. God promised to substitute. We've mentioned it before, Genesis 22, eight. My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. You realize that every Old Testament sacrifice was nothing more than a promise that God would one day provide a perfect sacrifice. You do realize that the first lamb that was ever slain for sin, when Adam and Eve sinned to the Garden of Eden, the first lamb that was slain was slain by God. As God took that animal and he caused its lifeblood to be shed and he made coats to clothe Adam and Eve. But then could I just say this, the last lamb that was slain for sin was slain by God as God slew his only begotten son who was the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And every sacrifice that was offered was nothing more than a reiteration of the promise that God will provide a substitute. Not only did God promise a seed, not only did God promise a substitute, but God promised a son. Isaiah seven fourteen. the Lord himself shall give you a son. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah would say later in Isaiah chapter nine and verse number six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And what God had promised at Calvary became reality as God provided his son. Ultimately, God promised satisfaction. God said all the debt that is outstanding all that is owed, I promise that it will be satisfied. One day I'll take care of it. And Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 10, the Bible says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The truth of it is that Calvary vindicated every promise that God had ever made. The promise of a seed, the promise of a substitute, the promise of a son, the promise of satisfaction. All at Calvary was all wrapped up and God said, see, I did what I told you I would do. I have kept my word. I have provided what I promised I would provide. And Calvary vindicated God's promises. Not only did Calvary validate God's plan, not only did Calvary vindicate God's promises, but could I just say to you that Calvary verified God's passion. Calvary gave opportunity for words to become reality. You know, God's love had been proclaimed. God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse number five, speaking of Israel, Moses said to them, 
the Lord thy God loved thee. God himself said in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse number three, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. There was no question that God had said that he loved mankind. But you know, talk is cheap. Anybody can say I love you. But to prove I love you is something different. God's love had been proclaimed. But at Calvary, God's love was proven. Romans 5, 12, but God commendeth, God demonstrated, God manifested, God showed his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The depths of God's love has never been measured. The width of God's love has never been discovered. The length of God's love has never been found. The height of God's love has never been reached. The beauty of God's love has never been described. The wealth of God's love has never been estimated. But the fact of God's love can never be denied for Calvary is proof that God loves sinful men. And Calvary verified his passion. Calvary validated his plan. Calvary vindicated his promise. Calvary verified his passion. But I just want to say tonight that Calvary was a blessing to God for Calvary vacated his paradise. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 8. Paul is talking about the gifts of God. And he talks about the measure of the gift of Christ. And he says in Ephesians 4, 8, Wherefore he saith, talking about an Old Testament prophecy, Psalm chapter 68, the 68th Psalm makes this prophetic statement that Paul pulls out and reiterates for us. He said, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might feel all things. You say, what in the world is he talking about? Well, you see, here's the problem. Because until Calvary, there was no payment for sin that had satisfied the debt. As a result, heaven was not open. People could not go to heaven. When we read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and by the way, many Bible scholars do not believe that that is a parable because Jesus used a personal name. So very likely that is a real story. He just didn't use the rich man's name to save him embarrassment. And so the truth of it is, that's probably a very real story, an incident that happened. And when that, that beggar Lazarus died, the Bible says he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. In fact, he was in the same location as the rich man. The only difference was the rich man was in torment and he was in bliss and there was a great gulf fixed between them. It seems very likely that paradise, Abraham's bosom, was in the heart of the earth. Before Calvary, when a man died, though he had faith in God, though he had been obedient to God, though he believed God, the payment for sin had never been made. Therefore, he was not free to enter into heaven. The debt had been acknowledged, but the debt was still outstanding. But when Christ went to the cross of Calvary and shed his blood, he cried out, it is finished. 
paid in full. The debt is paid. It's taken care of. And as a result, when he left Calvary, he descended into the heart of the earth. And by the way, uh, he uh, announced to those who were in paradise that redemption had been secured. Can you imagine what it must have been like in paradise? I mean, the very first person who entered that place was Abel, who was slain for his faith in God. And for century after century, Abel waited in paradise. It was a place of bliss. It was a place of enjoyment. He had all of his needs met, but he was still locked up in prison and not free to go. And every time somebody would darken the doors of that place, Abel would look up and say, are you the one we're looking for? And they would say no. Isaiah darkened the doors of that place and he said, are you the one we're looking for? He said, no, but I wrote about him. He's on his way. It's just a matter of time. Isaiah was there for a few years and all of a sudden Malachi appeared on the scene. They said, are you the one? He said, no, I'm not. But I've seen him. One day the son of righteousness is gonna rise with healing in his wings. Just hang on, fellas. It's all gonna be all right. They were there for a few years and all of a sudden a man darkened the doors of that place. A man dressed kind of roughly. He had a coat of camel's hair. He had breath that smelled of locust and wild honey. And they said, hey, are you the one? He said, no, I'm not him, but I saw him. It's getting close, fellas. It's almost here. I saw him. He's the Lamb of God, and he's come to take away the sin of the world. And all of a sudden, one day after Calvary, the doors of that place opened up. And when he walked through the doors, he didn't have to say a word. He just held up his hands with those prints and they recognized him. And he said, come on children, we're going home. The captive is gonna be led captive. We're gonna be set free. I'm taking you to your eternal home, a place of heaven, because now the sin debt has been satisfied. And Calvary vacated his paradise. My time is gone. But let me remind you that Calvary was a blessing to God because Calvary validated his plan. Calvary vindicated his promises. Calvary verified his passion. Calvary vacated his paradise. But Calvary was a blessing because Calvary vanquished Satan's prospects. Oh, he who had held sway for so long was put to flight. Colossians chapter two and verse number 15, Paul says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Oh, can I say that one day at Calvary, God said, all right, Satan, you've had your way long enough. All of my promises are gonna be fulfilled. All, of my, uh, all that I have planned is gonna be verified and validated. My passion is gonna be proven. I am going to send my son. He will offer himself and that will put to an end once and for all, all that you have planned and plotted for. And now the door of salvation will be open to whosoever will. Let him come take the water of life freely. Without a doubt, it is true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But if all that God gave at Calvary is not received, then the gift is in vain. Oh, could I say, yes, it's true that Calvary validated his plan. That's a blessing. It's true that Calvary vindicated his promise. That was a blessing to God. It's true that Calvary verified his passion and Calvary vacated his paradise. It is true that Calvary vanquished Satan's prospects. 
You see, it's really true that Calvary visualizes God's purpose. For he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God said, the greatest blessing of Calvary is when a sinner says yes. When a sinner says, God, look what you have done. Look how much you love me. Look what a great price you paid. God, all I can do is say I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. But if you'll take me, I'll take you. And can I say, he receives everyone that comes unto him. He never turns someone away. You say, but you don't know what I've done. No, but I know what he's done. And Jesus paid it all. You say, you don't know how bad I am. No, but I know how good he is. And he made a way for whosoever. Oh, yes. Calvary is a blessing to God. Have you allowed it to be a blessing to you? Tonight, let me ask you this question. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that heaven is your home? Is there a time in your life when you have confessed your sin, realized that you could never make it to heaven of your own merits, that you were lost and undone, that you were under condemnation and justly so headed for a devil's hell, but that you realize that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that if you would believe in him, that you didn't have to perish, but you could have everlasting life. And you have asked Christ to be your Savior. If not, why not come tonight? You could have the greatest Easter that you've ever had. For you could have the living Savior, not just understanding that he rose again, but you could have him living within your heart, walking with you every step of the way. If you're not saved, why not come tonight? But then you say, preacher, we are saved. The vast majority of us are church members. We're good people. We know Christ. We recognize everything you've said tonight. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you stopped and thanked him for Calvary? When is the last time you bowed your knee and said, God, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. But I just want to say thank you for being a blessing to me in providing your son to pay my sin debt. Then let me ask you this third question before we begin our invitation. Who have you told about the good news that Jesus saves? Oh, what a great opportunity we have. We have the greatest message in the world. We tell of the only Savior, the only way of salvation. But how often have we been guilty of keeping this good news to ourselves? Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.